reading the, the news yesterday and today and um, looking at the, these photos of the marches that are going on. I forget what they called them, the March for Life or something like that. And, um, you know, of course, I'm, I'm looking at pictures of, of kids, of students with signs, which is super compelling, no matter what you think about what they're saying. And, um, and, I, and I felt like it's important that the church hears the voice of these people. You know, I was teaching in Acts 17 in my New Testament survey class, and I was pointing out the way that Paul preaches at Mars Hill. And uh, he's surrounded by these pagans and surrounded by idolatry. And Paul stands up, and what he doesn't say at that point is, you guys are terrible, disgusting pagans. He, he looks at them, and he, he honors them. He says, I, I, I see that you're very religious. And he, he builds bridges all throughout his, his sermon there because he, they're not where he wants them to be, but he knows that he wants to go with them to where he wants them to be. And no matter what you think about their proposed solutions to problems, um, these people are crying out for peace in, in their schools. And that is a good and godly desire. And Jesus says to his people, blessed are the peacemakers. And that's us. That is, that is meant to be us. Um, I'm not here to talk in front of you about what, how the Second Amendment is applied in legislation. I have no idea. If I did, you know, I'd have a different job. Um, but I, I do know this. When the world is crying out for a good and godly desire, the church has a responsibility to step into that space and to be a representative of the kingdom of God. And I also know that our proposed response cannot be the response that the world would produce without the genius of Jesus. So the response cannot just be, you know, what we actually need is more guns, or if we just melt all the guns down, they'll be fine. We can't take the hymn sheet of, of the NRA or another political party and just read that and say, this will fix the problem, and now the church is doing its job. Because we are citizens of the kingdom of God. So any solution that we propose to the world has to be stamped with the genius of Jesus. And I, I don't know how exactly that works out. I, I, I wish I could be more concrete for you, but can I just give you a, a couple examples? You know, a lot of people will say that in addition to a, a weapons problem, a violence problem, we have a, a mental health problem in this country. Well, how often does the church look at itself and say, how well do we care for people with mental health issues? Or, or are we a part of actually stigmatizing people and saying, actually, if you just believe better and try harder and buck up, then you'll just be better. That, that's not a biblical answer, and nor is it offering peace to people who desperately need peace. So we have some things to look at for ourselves. And, you know, and my, my second example is I was looking, kind of watching in on, on, a, 
and pastors talking about questions of church security. And they're asking, there's kind of like a poll, is your solution to like make sure somebody is armed in your congregation or, or not? And you know, there's this congregation, there's this conversation among pastors from all over the country and you know, some of them are like, yeah, we're making sure somebody's packing in church. Um, and others are like, you know, we're going to hire a police officer uh, to make sure somebody's out there. And I was really struck in that moment. Um, I, of course, the care for the innocent and the, the, those unable to defend themselves, that is a good and godly thing. But I was struck how few of us were talking about, do we train our people to lay down their lives? Like how many of our people, how many of us am I being informed to instinctively surrender my life? Not, not, not even thinking necessarily about stopping the person who's doing it, but do I instinctively go to lay down my life for, for my wife and my kids and other people's family members? And then kind of the, the point was pressed even deeper to me. Are we forming people? Am I being formed in such a way that if somebody who wanted to do violence appeared in our midst, would I want to lay my life down for them? Are we forming a people that would want to throw themselves on top of somebody so that this whole thing didn't end with them getting shot and killed. And I don't know how that works out pragmatically, right? I don't know how, how that's a crazy scenario that I hope to never be in. But Scripture is very clear that, that God dies for his enemies, and he forms people that look that way too. That as a way of thinking and talking about the problem that the world is not going to propose. And that has ramifications outside of the hypothetical scenario of a crazy, violent mess. Am I willing to sacrifice my life day by day for the outsider, for the angry one, for the isolated one? I don't know. I don't know. But these are the kinds of questions that we need to be addressing our culture with. And so when you see hundreds of thousands of people led by children, at least partially, I hope our response as a church individually and corporately is to say, what they want is good. How do we participate in bringing peace to these kids? into our world at large. Now this is Palm Sunday. We are celebrating the royal Jesus. And Jesus rides into the world as the Prince of Peace, riding on a colt, on a donkey, and not a stallion. That should mark us and should mark how we address something like this in our world. So I want to pray. Um, I want to pray for us here this morning, of course, as we prepare to hear the Word of God. And I want to pray for these people who 
Maybe you were involved in the march. I don't, I don't know. Um, but I want to pray for our schools. Look, we're, I mean, we are in a school. I want to pray for our schools and for our kids, that they would be marked by the peace of God and that the church would be present there uh, as agents of that kingdom. So would you pray, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we pray for your peace. We pray that the peace of God would come into the world. And we know that 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 peace will not fully come until your feet stand on the earth again. But God, we pray that we would be working that some hint some reflection of that peace would break into the world even now. We pray, God, for all of the many, 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 many families who have been affected by violence in our culture, specifically families who have lost kids in school violence, and families whose children have witnessed it, even if they have survived it. We pray, Lord Jesus, that your peace would come to them. And God, we pray that you would form us as a people to be active peacemakers in the world, not as defined by the world, Nobody's agenda defining the peace of God, but only King Jesus. Help us to be wise and creative and just in our communities. God, we do ask that you would form us as a people to love and care for the weak and the defenseless, to be ready and willing to lay down our lives for our enemies. And God, we pray for all of those in authority who, who do not wield the sword in vain, as, as Paul said. For all of those who, who are in positions of governing authority, God, we pray that you would at, help them to act justly and wisely. Give them wisdom that most of us do not have. God, we pray this morning that our hearts would be tender before your word. That you would cut us open here. You would expose our hearts. God, we pray that you would shape us and form us by the power of your word so that we might grow even today more into the image of your son. Amen. We're in 1 Samuel 18 and 19. I'm not going to read all of both of these chapters. I'm just going to sort of fill in the gaps, read parts from from both chapters. Um, I would encourage you, of course, to to read every word of of both chapters. Um, These two chapters are are going to change the the story, and this is kind of a a pivoting point. Um, The story of 1 and 2 Samuel has started to focus on David, David in 1 Samuel 16 is, 
He's anointed to be the coming king, but he's not installed as the king of Israel. So nobody really knows that he's supposed to be the king. And in 17 is the story that everybody loves, David killing Goliath. 18 and 19, we see our our young hero here um, go from those mountaintop victory moments with, with Goliath and his decapitated body at his feet to going on the run because the, the current king of Israel, King Saul, is not prepared to deal with this little shepherd boy intruding on his position of authority. So um, in First Samuel 18, starting at, at verse 6, it says, As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out all, of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing his lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And when he, out and he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before him. Saul then kind of sets up this scheme to, to entrap David. He owes David one of his daughters. That was part of the prize of killing Goliath is he gets to marry into the royal family, and he's not prepared to let David marry his oldest daughter, but his younger daughter, Michal, is sort of taken with the hero, and, and Saul says, he's kind of sees his opportunity here and says, you know, I'll let you marry Michal, and David says, you know, I'm poor. He just lays it on the line and says, I can't pay the bride price, um, which, you know, we don't have that culturally, but in their culture, you don't just get to like put a ring on it and get married. You kind of owe something to this, to this woman's family um, to make up for sort of the loss of the honor of her beauty from their household and the fact that she's been taken care of all of her life, yada, yada, yada. Saul knows that he's poor. And so he says, great, I've got to trade for you. And he assigns him this task of going to basically just kill a bunch of Philistines and circumcise their dead bodies and bring him the, the proof. Um, and the hope maybe is that David will go and get himself killed in the process. Unfortunately, David appears to be very good at killing people, and he has no problem uh, completing this task. So he marries Michal, um, and David uh, is... Hopefully, then, if he marries the daughter, maybe he's like, well, he's kind of brought into the family. He's less of a threat. So it's kind of a win-win in Saul's mind, except Saul is losing his mind. So then Jonathan tries to 
to work on David's behalf with his father. Kind of calm him down, give him some good words. Hey, remember, David's kind of like helped us out here. Let's sort of chill out on the killing him thing. And Saul's like, right, let's, let's not kill him. Uh, in verse 6 of 19, it says, Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul, so they struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning, but Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed." So Michal led David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed, an image as in an idol, and put a pillow of goat's hair at his head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messenger to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image, the idol was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go so that he's escaped? Michal answered, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? So she kind of covers herself here. Saul chases David. David goes to Samuel. And there's this really strange incident where the Spirit of God directly protects David. And the presence of the Spirit of God just sort of knocks Saul's people out. And Saul comes to chase him, and Saul himself is knocked to the floor by the Spirit of God. And it says he prophesies. He's just laying on the ground, prophesying kind of naked, just knocked out for a day because of the presence of God. And David escapes. And this will start a section of the book where David is just on the run. He's on the run. This um, quite the interesting turn for David. He's just left battle. He's successful and well-loved. And all of a sudden, he needs protection. Because Saul is crazy with jealousy. Just literally going crazy with it. The text says that the Twice, an evil spirit comes from the Lord, that God allows this man to be tormented in his mind, in his heart, as a form of judgment. And obviously, it's, this is not out of the blue. It's not like Saul was like a good guy before this, and then demons come and make him a bad guy. This stuff is already in him. He's already deeply jealous before the evil spirit from the, from the Lord torments him. It's just sort of pouring gas on the flame that's already there. And twice Saul tries to pin David to the wall with a spear. It's really interesting because in the text it just it talks about him having the spear. And immediately before this, the only character that has a spear like this is Goliath. And so there is this 
this blending of images here. There is this Goliath that has this huge spear, and we have Saul that who has already kind of accepted the premises of engagement, trying to wear the armor that's like the enemy and bearing his weapons and trying to kill David. We're being, we're being told here that there is really some sort of demonic stepping over into the enemy's camp. So Saul really can't see what's in front of him. You know, there is at no point does David say, I have been anointed king. You are out. You know, pack up your stuff. This palace is mine. Um, Today begins the day of my reign. There's never an attempt by David to do this at all. Saul is so driven by his jealousy that he, he only sees the truth in part. You know, he rightly hears the songs sung about David. David has killed his tens of thousands. Saul has killed his thousands. He he rightly hears that David's popular. But what Saul hears is threat to his throne. And David actually never presents a threat to his throne. And this is sort of the way that jealousy works, right? When When we view the world through the lens of our own experience, we begin to to magnify the offense against us and overlook all the ways the world is actually not, doesn't even care about you, just doesn't, is not not worried about you in the least. This is the the terrible way that, that jealousy works is that it reconstitutes the story of the world as as being all about you. And everybody else is just oblivious to the fact that the world is all about you, which is supremely aggravating and frustrating. How could you not recognize my place as the center, the very center of the universe? You know, we, we see this in ways all over our culture. We're just sort of constructed and, and encouraged and compelled to think this way. I was listening to a podcast or maybe reading an article about the way that teenage culture is affected by, by social media. And these girls were talking about this economy of Instagram that they, they don't just... I did not know this. This was all new to me. They don't just throw a picture up there and say, that's fun, I showed a picture. And they don't even just count the likes that, that, that pop up. They, they gauge their friends by how quickly they give the like and then what kind of comment they leave. And if they give a like but not a comment, like what does that mean? And it can send them into a tailspin. And then there's like the passive aggressive thing, like I know they saw this and they did not throw that like on there. And so all of this economy that's created by Instagram leads you to believe that everybody is waiting for me to show myself on Instagram. And this may be true to an alarming degree, like there may be way too much truth about people waiting for their next refresh uh, of Instagram, but 
Like, what if your friends are just busy? What if they're eating? Um, What if they're taking a nap? What if for one hour, you really aren't the center of the universe? And these teenagers talking about how devastating this is, and they will launch like counter wars against the people who fail to like or comment in proper order and time because they're just convinced these people are doing this to them on purpose. And these systems, they're arranged to get us to think this way. The world now is shaped to get you to live your life through a a selfie. And so we, we are shaped and formed this way to believe this lie that we are the center. I, I know what happens in my life. Forget social media. I, when I come home for work, from work, it's 5.30, I am hungry. Like, I am ready to eat. I'm not ready to wait, wait to eat. I'm not ready to, to wait and watch the clock count down for 20 minutes until dinner is ready. I'm ready to put food in my body or else I will chew on furniture. I am hungry. My blood, pre- my, my blood sugar is dropping. My patience disappears. And when I get home and dinner is not ready, the temptation is to look at my wife and say, what the heck are you doing? Where is the food for me to eat in my belly right now? If you don't know me, I have four kids. If I say that... I will die. (laughs) Because my wife will say, what are you talking about? I have got all of this going on right now. I don't need you up in my business. You better back off. You will get the food when it is done. I am sorry you cannot eat, but if you open your mouth again, you will be more sorry. (laughs) Because what have I done? I've come home and I've just assumed The center of the universe has arrived. (laughs) Now everything fall into proper gravity and feed me now and then I can deal with whatever else is going on. I am wired this way. You and I are all wired this way. And what we see in Saul is the painful and violent end, the most extreme version of that way that we are. Now, you may never have thrown a spear at someone to try to impale them. I've come close at dinner time at times. But you will find ways to destroy those around you because ultimately you cannot handle these people who won't worship at your feet like they should. It may, it may not be angry and intentional, but you will weaponize your jealousy And you're discontent until you wound and abuse everybody around you. Until they fall in line or until they disappear because they just can't be around you anymore. We live with the appetite that Saul has in our own bellies. And it is dangerous. It is not a character flaw, a minor foible this jealousy that we have. 
And we should look at the way the world works around us and be very concerned at the ways that we are being formed and shaped to believe that actually everything is about us. Because it is simply untrue and it will destroy us and those around us. It's worth looking at this story too and noting the way that God protects his, his servant, his child, David. One commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, a pastor, he, he notes that we should pay attention to the diversity of ways in which God protects David and take it as instructive. Because he says, in one instance, a couple instances, David dodges the spear. He just flat up gets up and, and gets out of the way. In another instance, he, he uses a friend, the, the counsel of a friend, to divert danger. And then there's another time where his wife is just tricky and saves him by her canniness. And then the final example is the way that God directly intervenes in this miraculous way. But all throughout this, these two chapters, 18 and 19, God is very clearly caring for and protecting his, his servant. He's providentially tending and caring. And it is worth remembering and recognizing that God will use a diversity of ways to care for his people, to protect his people. You know, oftentimes we want to be protected in a very specific way, usually the most miraculous way. If, if God could do the thing where he just sort of intervenes and knocks people on their back, that'd be great. That's usually what I pray for. God just kind of, bright light, no bright light, that's fine, leave that up to you. But if you could just miraculously intervene directly and supernaturally, that'd be wonderful. But that's often not how God intervenes. He uses friends and, and wisdom and lets you exercise some skill and courage. And we just don't quite know all the time how God is going to intervene and protect. But what we can be reminded of is that God does providentially care for his people. He will always be with his people. Always. That's ultimately Jesus' promise, right? It's not that that protection will extend to always escaping the circumstances. Most of the people that he says, I will never leave you and forsake you, most of the people that were standing there, they die horrible deaths. But the promise is that even in the midst of their dying, that he's there. Because providentially, sovereignly, as the true king, he will never leave his people. David here escapes because of the care and providence of God and the, this kingship that he is called to. It's preserved because of God's providential care. But ultimately, David does not provide for us the template of what Israel's true king looks like. This is one of the instances where you can't look at David and say, that's like God, but better. Because what Israel's real king, what Israel's true king will do is ultimately much better than what David does. We are stuck on the horns of the powers of evil 
And we are consumed by the powers of self-worship and jealousy. And what, what Jesus will do when he rides into Israel as the Prince of Peace is he will not dodge like David does, but he will instead stand against the wall with his arms spread and let the spear pierce him. David is saved by the, the convincing of his friend but when Jesus comes, he hears the voice of his father and instead dies for his friend. Instead of, of being delivered over by the, the canniness and the schemes of his wife, Jesus will instead stay in the bed, in a sense, and save his bride. David here is by the providence of God being directed away from danger. And when Jesus, the true King of Israel, rides in to save, he actually runs directly into danger. Because what we'll see when Jesus is crowned King, it is with the crown of suffering. All the suffering and all the evil that the world can muster, all the demonic forces of darkness, all the enemies of God that are arrayed against the people of God, even the enemies of jealousy that consume us from the inside and the powers of death that strike us from the outside, Jesus will run directly into the power of death and sin itself and say that he will not escape so that we ourselves might providentially be rescued into safety. Jesus is crowned king by his suffering. Today is Palm Sunday. Today is the day in the church calendar that we remember that Jesus rides into Jerusalem in unexpected ways, and the people there acclaim his coming. They say, this is the son of David. This is David's heir. And they expect that they will be delivered by his coming. And he brings this message within days that he will not deliver them in the way that they expect. But that God's providential care and means of escaping suffering will come by his own suffering. There is deep irony tragic irony on Palm Sunday because they will not recognize what Jesus came to do. And Jerusalem itself will participate in calling for his death. We stand here on Palm Sunday on the other side of the cross. And so when we wave our palms, as we're going to do in just a few minutes, we stand and we sing and we acclaim the victory of God in ways that are bigger and better than we ever could have devised or constructed for ourselves. When we wave our palms, we say that God has freed us from delusion of the world circling around us as the center of all of its gravity. When we stand and we, we wave our palms and we acclaim the victory of God, we are, we are singing loud the fact that he doesn't just providentially maybe deliver us from all danger. He providentially delivers us from the deepest and darkest dangers. And he did it at cost 
to himself. Jesus is Israel's true and better king. Is Jesus our true and better king this morning? Is our assumption that God is there to deliver us from all our trouble? Do we intend to use God as some sort of lever or ploy to avoid pain and hardship? Do we actually still deeply believe that everyone, including God, should bow at our feet? That trouble is the deeper trouble. That delusion is the power of a deeper enemy. And that is what Jesus wants to save us from this morning. Leave all of that stuff aside. The prison of that other lesser kingdom. And instead see your kingdom right in, your king right in before you. Offering you entry to a kingdom that frees you to be small before him. So that you can come and see the real and true center of the universe. And be free to be who you were made to be. A child acknowledging and celebrating the king arrayed in beauty. Who has won for his people all that they need. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that there is no king like you and that you have come for us. That you have not dodged away from the attack of the enemy, but you have instead embraced it with arms thrown open wide so that you could grab it and wrestle it into the grave with you. God, we we know that you are our only hope in life and death. You are the source of salvation. And we, as your people, need that salvation all the time, every day, to be delivered from the powers that assail us. God, I pray that we would see you as the crucified King. That our hearts would be filled with love for you. God, I pray that we would see the beauty of the cross again. See the beauty of the way that you have chosen to deliver us. You are our hero, Jesus. And you are better than we could have ever hoped for. Help us, God, to put all our hopes in you. And save us from all these lesser, cheap hopes. You are so good, Jesus. And we thank you. Amen.